0: Open your Bibles to Genesis 24 if you have a Bible with you today. Genesis 24, Brace Bereishit. Brace sheet. We're continuing through Bereishit. We're doing uh, one chapter a week, sometimes two chapters a week. Have you all been enjoying this so far? Yeah. Been learning a lot, huh? Yeah. I've really enjoyed this. The first time in my life, just really stopping and studying one chapter for an entire week, and I've really dug into it and learned a lot. I don't know about you guys. But um, we we normally do the Torah portions every year, and this covers about five or six chapters a week. There's just so much to really stop, and to dig in and hover on one chapter, and to be able to extract a lot of information from it. So I really like just slowing down and going through one chapter at a time. So thank you guys for your patience in that. And um, for those who are new around here, I am a former school teacher. I treat this like a classroom. If you have a question or anything like that, just raise your hand and I'll be happy to entertain that question. The only thing I have to ask is that it's about, um, about the text that we're teaching and that it's not a dad joke, Patrick. Um, no, you can... Okay, okay. You can have a dad joke. You get one a week. One a week, Patrick. I'm really picking on Patrick today. Why is that? So Genesis 24. Here we go. Now, there's three places that were mentioned in Scripture, explicitly mentioned in Scripture, that were bought and paid for and are still, to this day, the most highly contested places in all the land of Israel. Can anyone name a couple of those places? There's three that I know of. There is like an explicit record in the book of Genesis that that was bought and paid for by somebody, one of our patriarchs. But they're still contested. This yeah, the Threshing floor, which became the Temple Mount. Yeah, the Temple Mount. Very highly contested. Just, just this past couple weeks, especially with Passover and Ramadan overlapping, this year has been tense on the Temple Mount. Israeli police went into the Alaska Mosque and grabbed a bunch of guys that were held up in there and dragged them out, arrested them. They were, they were throwing rocks, shooting fireworks, all this other stuff. Just a lot of intense stuff going on. And it's always like, well, they did it first. Well, they did that first. And all it's, it's just like, it's just a very highly contested spot. It's 36 acres, the most contested land on the earth right now is the Temple Mounts. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Anybody think of anything else? Adrian talked about it last week. Highly contested area. The cave of Machpelah. Yeah. The cave of, Mach, ca- of Machpelah yeah. Mach-Pela is still highly contested to this day. Can anybody think of another one? Uh, no, because there isn't any explicit purchase of that in the scripture as far as I know. Okay. And today, today, modern times, it's called the city of Nablus. What was it in ancient times? Anybody know? It means Shoulder. It's Shechem, city of Shechem, in mo- modern-day Nablus, very highly contested places. Um, but the, the, the deed, uh, the title deed is in Scripture. So if you believe the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have to be pro-Israeli uh, 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 control of those three places, because they are the people of the book. They are the people through whom that lineage is continued, right? Um, And then last week, Adrian talked about the death of Sarah and the purchase of the cave of Machpelah and how he paid outright, right? And then we covered that. Um, So let's dig into Genesis 24, verse 1. It says, by now, Avraham was a zaken. A zaken. Your translations maybe say old. Um, A zaken is literally a beard, a long beard. Zaken is the Hebrew word for beard. So he, he was old. It's also the word for like an elder. He was advanced in years, by byamim. He had he had been coming along in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham, bichol in everything. Now let's pause. And why was Abraham blessed in everything? Was it just good luck? His relationship with God. God. He obeyed God. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. His relationship with God. Now, now I, I like that. That sounds great. It's like if I obey God, I'll be blessed in everything. Well, God promised. And that, that, that works out sometimes, but then I know people who obey God really uh, diligently and they don't have a lot or they suffer a lot. So why was he blessed in everything? I think it's the intersection of him obeying God, but also him being very diligent in his relationship with people and prudent with his relationship with people around him. In other words, he was, he was a, a man of integrity with people around him as well. In his business dealings, he was honest. He was, he was a good steward of that which he was entrusted with, okay? And we should be the same. And if we see someone who's being obedient to God and they're successful in business and they're, and they're honest and they're wealthy, we should praise that. We should not scoff at that. Like, I know there's people in the, the world right now that are saying, oh, the top 1%, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like that Robin Hood mentality of jealousy and strife. Don't buy into that. You can be godly and you can be wealthy. And actually, that's, I think that's a really godly thing to do because then you can use that wealth to honor God. But you can be godly and you can be also very poor and very impoverished. And you can suffer a lot because you're trusting in God. So there isn't like this like one size fits all kind of answer. But just because someone's wealthy doesn't mean that they're ungodly. Now hopefully they became wealthy through prudent means, through, through honest endeavors. And we should do the same thing. We should be known as people. The community should know us as, as honest individuals. One of the things I do at work um, is I find tools around houses all the time. I work construction and I walk into a house. Like just the other day, I found one of the electricians' screwdrivers. It was an old, tore up looking flathead screwdriver. Before that, I have, found, um, I have found ladders, I have found drills, I found all kinds of tools just going around the houses that, that different tradesmen leave. One of my favorite things to do is to hunt that tradesman down and give him his tool back. Oh, wow. Because in the culture of construction, it's so often the case, there's this finders keepers kind of rule. Exactly. And my favorite thing is to take, I took that ratty old screwdriver, and I found Pablo like a few days later. And I was like, here's your screwdriver back. And he's like, confused, like, wait, what? You know, and I try to, I, I just get kind of kicked out of that, like finding the original owner of that tool. Um, but I try to be honest and, and have integrity in my dealings with people around me. And that, that, that brings respect, and I'm blessed in everything. Hopefully, that's the case. Verse 2. Avraham said to the servant who had served him the longest, who was in charge of all he owned. Now, who is this servant? Do we know? We do. Flip back to, to Genesis 15.2. Genesis 15.2. But for some reason, he's not named here. Genesis 15.2. It says, Avram replied, Adonai God, what good will your gifts be to me if I continue childless and Eliezer from Damascus inherits my possessions? Eliezer has been at Avraham's side for a very long time. He's his most trusted servant, his friend, you could say, who had served him the longest. But you'll notice in this entire narrative, he's never named. And I think that's significant, and we should catch on to that. He was in charge of all that he owned. He said, put your hand under my Yarek, because I want to Sheva by Adonai. Now, a Yarek, there's um, lots of different translations on this. Some of you may have thigh. How many of you have thigh? Okay, and that's not bad. How many have something different than thigh? What do you have? Just shout it out. Okay. Go, to get a better understanding, one of the things I do is go to see where other occurrences of this word are. Go to Genesis 32.25. Genesis 32.25. Genesis 32, 25. A few chapters over. Oh, okay. So it says, um, Yaakov, Jacob, is wrestling with his angel, and then some man uh, wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he did not defeat Jacob, he struck Jacob's Yarek. And then what? When he saw that he did, uh, his, his, his hip was dislocated while wrestling with him. And then, so we see Yarek being used as the thigh or the hip there, right? And that's why it says that people of Israel still don't eat that sinew that runs through there, maybe the sciatic nerve or something. Go to Exodus 32, 27. Exodus 32, 27. Exodus 32, 27. Here is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. Each of you, you know, this is right after the golden calf incident. Each of you put his sword on his yarek, his yarek. So, what is that? What does your translation say? The side. side. Yeah. Go to Leviticus one eleven. Leviticus one eleven. Leviticus one eleven. He is to slaughter it on the north yarek of the altar before Adonai. So that's the side, right? Now, this is used again in the book of Genesis. Go to Genesis 47, 29. Genesis 47, 29. We're actually going to see a really similar story to this. Genesis 47, 29. Genesis 47, 29. The time came when Israel, Jacob, was approaching death so he called for his son Yosef and said to him if you truly love me please put your hand under my Yarek and pledge that out of consideration for me you will not bury me in Egypt so we see some similarities here between this story that we're reading about um, Abraham and his servant and later Jacob and Joseph they both are nearing death right both are dealing with family matters but what's interesting is um, some commentators will say that Eliezer or the unnamed servant here is actually placing his hand at the place of the circumcision, if you catch my drift for older audiences here. Oh, wow. Some would say, well, no, he's just putting it under his thigh. Well, it's, it could be either one, and I'm not married to either one, but basically what's going on here is he's saying that he's, he's placing his hand under his loins, the place of the seed. If you want to call it that um, there's actually an old Roman custom that when, when Romans would testify before a court of law, that they would hold their testimony while swearing to tell the truth. And that's where we get the word testify. It's like another part of the male anatomy. That's why they're similar. It's because it's the idea that that is the, that is your lineage that you are swearing by not only your own word, I know I gotta move on quick. Everybody's looking at me You're like, gay okay, careful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're not only swearing by your own word and your own character, but also everyone that is to come from your loins. And so that's what's going on here, is that Avram is saying, look, I was given a promise that I would be, that I would have many descendants. I want you to put your hand under my loins and swear, not only by your character, but all those people and that promise that God made me, that you would go to this place. And let's keep reading here now that we, we kind of established that. Now, Matthew five, our master Yeshua says, hey, don't make any oaths, right? What does he say? Just let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. Why? Because we break oaths, don't we? We have some weird oath taking practices, don't we? Um, when we swear in Supreme Court justices, what do we do? They, they put their hand on a Bible and they, or they raise their right hand, right? Or what's another weird oath thing that we do? We Sometimes we spit in our hand. We don't really do that nowadays. Spit in our hand and shake, right? Or sometimes we like cut. We're blood brothers. We make a cut and then shake hands or something like that. There are some weird oath practices. And they, even children, they take, what do they do? Pinky swear, right? Well, an oath is saying that basically when I say yes, I will do something or yes, I will keep my promise, that that's not good enough. But rather, let's take it the next step. And I will make an oath with you. But Yeshua says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say you're going to do something, just do it. Because we break oaths sometimes and we devalue them. He says, put your hand on my Yarek because I want want to swear by Adonai, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not choose a wife for my son from among the women of the Canaanites, among whom I am living. But you will go to my homeland, to my kinsmen, to choose a wife from my son. Now, let's talk about the Canaanites. Why does he not want him to choose a wife from the Canaanites? Pagan. Because they're, they're, they're steeped in idolatry and paganism. Yeah, it's not so much a racial component as it is an ideological religious component. Because who you marry really shapes the outcome of your future, does it not? And yeah. people are so tired of me saying this, but I'll say it again who you marry and or make babies with on the first go around has a huge uh, effect on the rest of your life. It's the second most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life is who you marry and or make babies with the first go around It follows you. He's saying, don't go to the Canaanites. Ideologically, they're not on par with us. They're of a different religion. And there may be some righteous Canaanites who worship the God of heaven, the God of Abraham. But he's saying their family may not worship. So even if you find a, a, a young lady and she's a godly young woman, her parents might not be. Or even if her parents are, her cousins aren't, her siblings aren't. So you get into this mess. So what he's saying is, like, let's, just, let's just go back to our kinsmen and find someone there that is godly. Marry them and let's bring them back. So he says, um, find a wife for my son from among the women of the kingdom. Don't, don't find a wife from them. But you will go to my homeland, to my kinsmen, to choose a wife for my son Yitzchak, Isaac. And the servant replied, the unnamed servant replied, "Suppose the woman isn't willing to follow me to this land? Must I then bring your son back to the land from which you came?" Now, what do you guys think? Does she have a right to refuse? Sure. Sure, she does. Yeah. Abraham said to him, um, or uh, where did I miss my spot here? Six, Abraham said to him, see to it that you don't bring my son back there. Adonai, the God of heaven, who took me away from my father's house and away from the land I was born in, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your descendants. He will, be, he will send his melek ahead of you and you are to bring a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is lo taveh, if she's unwilling to follow you, then you're released of your obligation under my oath. Just don't bring my son back there. So it's interesting to me because he's like, he doesn't want his son to take a wife from here. He wants him to go there and find a wife, but he doesn't want him to stay there. He wants him to come back here. Why? The that's the land of promise, yeah. He's like, that, that is the people, that's the people that have a greater chance of being a good spouse to my son. And also they're of my kinsmen. And you gotta remember that in ancient times, marriage was equal parts probably, maybe not. Um, attraction, mutual attraction, and business or uh, keeping the wealth in the family. Because if you've acquired this wealth for your family, you don't want that being broken apart and dismembered into different areas and different directions. You want that to stay in your family so they can be passed down from generation to generation. And the, and the following generations can benefit from that and snowball that and hopefully grow it. So you got to think of it like that as well. But it's interesting here that you know some ancient um, maybe even Abrahamic faiths would say that a woman does not have a choice; that the man, if the <coughs> husband says you're to marry me, that's it, no rights whatsoever. But biblically speaking, she has rights; she can refuse. That's interesting, right? So the servant put his hand under his yarek of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning the matter. Verse 10. Then the servant took 10. Of his master's gamlim, gamlim camels, right? Now this is where um, you guys ever heard of Rabbi Paul's, the Apostle Paul. His teacher was who? Gamliel. Yeah, it's the same root word. Gamlim, Gamliel. It's camels. Okay. But he took ten. Now nothing is in Scripture by accident, right? Why ten? Why ten? No, Chris, it wasn't because she had a lot of shoes. No. (laughs) Had to bring back. Why 10? Hmm. Anybody have to get guesses? Mm-hmm. While you're thinking about it, let me tell you some information. Camels, when thirsty, can drink about 15 to 20 gallons of water in one sitting. So times that by 10, you've got about 150 gallons. If they take a long trip, that they need to be watered. That's significant, right? But why 10? Anybody have any guesses? 10, 10 is significant because 10 represents... The lost tribes of the house of Israel, the lost tribes of the house of Israel. And that'll come into later. Yeshua says to a Canaanite woman. When she's begging for healing, he says to her what I've come not but for who the lost. the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So is there intentionality here? I don't know, but it's interesting. But how much would this have been worth, do you think? Ten camels. Think about this. Abraham is taking ten camels. I would assume this isn't all of his camels, which really speaks to Abraham's wealth and net worth here. He's a very wealthy man. But camels today, I googled it. Googled it. Um, you, you can buy a camel today, apparently for about $2,500 to $5,000, depending on the species and the breed of camel. So let's just, say, you know, let's just say that kind of carries through, and it's about the same back then. So how much money it just, do we have just in camels here? Yeah, a lot. A lot of money that he's rolling up with, right? And it says all kinds of goodness or tov from his Adon, his master. So he's got just lots of wealth and he's going to make a long journey. And I've got a map up here if you want to direct your attention to the map. He's going to make a long journey up to the north to what is modern day Syria. So it says he got up and he went to Aram Rayim, which in translated, it means... The the high place, like the high plain between the two rivers, which is like modern-day Syria. So he's going to this high place between, which is like the, the cradle of civilization, sociologists call it, right? But this is like Abraham's homeland. To the city of Nahor, which is um, the city of Chara, uh, is his real name. And it says in verse 11, Toward evening... When the women go out to draw water, he had the camels kneel down outside the city by the pit or the well, the Ba'ar. Now, let's pause here and ask this question. What is the purpose of all this wealth? What's the practical or maybe, maybe not even practical purpose of bringing all this wealthy stuff to, to um, Haran? You guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah. yeah, it's like a dowry. Yeah. Now, we don't really do dowries anymore, do we? in in uganda um they do dowries in in some more traditional areas of uganda they do dowries and in fact um there's a the the husband brings a dowry and the wife's family bring a dowry and the husband and the wife to be in some locations they actually wrestle in front of the two families they wrestle each other yeah some of you are thinking well that might actually help our marital strife a little bit no, don't. <laughs> They actually wrestle a little bit. They wrestle, and if the man can pin the wife down on the ground, then he gets the wife's family's dowry. And it's the other way around. If the woman pins, and so they actually, they actually want a strong woman. A woman that can work hard and and bear children and and help with tasks and, and, and chores and stuff but there's like this double-edged sword. If I, want, if I get a strong woman, she might pin me to the ground. So I was sitting around these guys and they were just telling me the story they were just dying laughing, saying that this is still done to this day. But dowries are more rare today. Um, but there is this expectation in this more traditional mindset that, that before you marry a woman, the father of the bride-to-be looks at the man and says, how, are you, how well are you going to provide for my daughter? Right, And that's kind of the essence of a dowry. It's a kind of a show of force, like the show of wealth. Look, I got it covered. I've got all kinds of wealth. Don't even worry about her physical um, uh, uh, caretaking whatsoever. She's going to be provided for. But a dowry legally is important because... The, 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 so, so like Caleb and, and, and Annie, for instance, I'm going to pick on them today. Caleb and Annie, for instance... Caleb would give in a dowry situation, a sum of money preset by Adrian to Adrian. And he would say, I would like to take your daughter's hand in marriage. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But why? Like is, is Adrian just, is he just lucking out there? What's going on? It's because Adrian is losing Annie. And Annie to him is a source of, of all kinds of things, of, of labor. She's a, she's a caretaker, potentially. Um, he's losing that, so he's, legally speaking, Caleb is replacing that for him and saying, here you go. But also, Adrian, if he's wise, is going to take that and he's going to build wealth on top of that in the event, God forbid, that Annie has to come back to the household for whatever reason, either the death of Caleb or the divorce. In ancient times, that was kind of like a nest egg that you could go back to the father's house and then you could begin to kind of reestablish yourself now that you're single again with some of that wealth that was provided to you by your future husband. But there's all kinds of, if you look, if you look online, uh, there's all kinds of weird dowries you can find in traditions associated with that. But you can wrestle your future spouse too if you want. <laughs> Verse 12, he said, Adonai, God of my master Avraham. So the servant is praying now. Please let me succeed today and show your grace to my master Avraham. Here I am, standing by the Ein, the spring. Now, in Hebrew, um, the word Ein means I. You saw me point at my eye when I said Ein. But the word Ein can also mean a spring, like that boils out of the ground. Like we went to Blue Spring last year for Shavuot. That's an Ein in Hebrew. So, why are the two words the same? I'm not sure. But it's an Ein, like a, a, a spring. It's a natural spring. Now, ancient life, and even up until 150 years ago, 200 years ago, life revolved around clean drinking water, did it not? Where you can get drink, clean drinking water, you want to be close to that. You want to be very close to that. Um, did you know that Dothan was, was, it became established into a city and a settlement? And it's named Dothan, which means the place of two wells, because there was a spring here. It was called, um, it was called the Pins. Uh, what was it called? Popular. popular. Poplars popular pins. It was like a it was a cattle pin initially. Yeah, often uh, cow pins. Yeah, it was a cow pin where all the local cattlemen would bring their cows. And there was a there was a railroad that ran through this area. Still still does obviously, but there was a spring here, so they bring all their cattle to to the cow pins, and they would there would be a spring where they could water all their cows, and they'd put them on a train and export them out and sell them to in the market there. But that's how Dothan kind of became established back in the day. It's a place of two wells, but they're a fascinating study. If you guys want to go through the Bible and look at things that happen around wells and things that happen around springs, a lot happens. So it says, "As the daughters of the townsfolk came out to draw water." Now, this was an ancient thing as well, and it's still done in many developing nations to this day. You will see women and children every morning and evening. They go out to the local well, um, and in my my best frame of context is like Uganda and Kenya in the rural parts of those countries, um, there, there are springs that boil up out of the ground, but there's also like hand-pumped wells, which are a more modern thing, hand-pumped wells. You wouldn't have indoor plumbing in your house. So you know, today, even today, if you went there in some more rural places of Uganda, every evening you see women coming out with big yellow jerry cans, old diesel cans, and they have like four or five you know, carrying, they're carrying them maybe like a bicycle that they're gonna strap them to. Every evening they line up at the well, they line up at the pump, And they have their yellow jerry cans and they put it in there. And you guys seen this, right? Mike and Edith, you seen that the people lined up and they pump the water and then they put it on their shoulders, they put it on their bike. And you see these relatively small women carrying these massive jugs of water back up so that they can cook with it, so that they can wash with it and and whatever else they need. But that's that every morning, every evening, they go fetch the water. So it says here, he had the camels. Now, how many camels? Ten Ten camels. Yeah, kneel down outside the city by the well. And he said, um, I already read this, didn't I? I will say to one of the girls, please lower your jugs so that I can drink. If she answers, yes, drink, and I will water your camels as well, then let her be the one you intend for your servant, Isaac. And this is how I will know that you have shown chesed, grace to my Adon, my master. Now, what is significant about this? You think? She is, if she does this, she is exhibiting Abrahamic-like qualities. Remember? What did Abraham do whenever he saw visitors? Hospitality. Verse 15. Before he had even finished speaking, Rivka, Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the uh, son of Milka, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. Came out with her jug on her shoulder. Now, how many jugs does she have on her shoulder? One. One water jug. How many gallons does she need to feed all these camels? About 150 gallons. Ooh. Verse 16. The girl was very tovat. She was very beautiful. She was a betula. Never having had sexual relations with any man. And she went down to the Ain, the spring. She filled her jug and came up. The servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a sip of water from your jug. Drink, Adon, my lord, she replied, and immediately lowered her jug onto her arm and let him drink. When she was through letting him drink, she said, I will also draw water for your camels until they have drunk their fill. Wow. Does that add a little bit more context to how much work she's committing to doing here now? So she quickly emptied her jug into the trough and then roots, roots means to run, make haste, again to the well to draw water. And she kept on drawing water for all of his camels. Now, who else rootsed? (laughs) Who else ran? Go to Genesis 18. Go back, Genesis 18. Tor portion, vallera. Genesis eighteen. It says, Adonai appeared to Avraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of the tent during the heat of the day. He raised his eyes and looked, and there in front of him stood three men. On seeing them, he roots, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He prostrated himself on the ground, he said, My Lord, if I have found kin, favor in your sight, please don't leave your servant. Please let me send for some water so that you can wash your feet and rest under the tree. You see the similarities there? She has Abraham-esque hospitality, doesn't she? So she kept on drawing waterfalls, verse 21. The man gazed at her in silence, waiting to find whether Adonai had made his trip successful or not. Now, wait a second. She's already committed to doing this. Why is he waiting to see if it's successful or not? He wants to see if she's gonna fill it, finish the task. He's like, I got 10 camels. That's about 150 gallons these guys are going to drink. I want to see if she's up to this. So it's interesting that he hasn't even made up his mind yet. So I guess if she would have quit before it was done, he would have been like, nope, she's not the one. Wow. Some high standards, right? (laughs) It's very interesting. What verse do I leave off on? Verse 22. When the camels were done drinking, the man took a gold nose ring weighing one-fifth of an ounce. This is important here because in Hebrew, one-fifth of an ounce is a beka. It's, it's half half of a shekel. Now, why does half a shekel sound familiar? Because that's what they used to do when they, when they go do the census. And yeah, that is the temple tax. Remember, the Israelites had to pay half of a shekel of a tax? A beka, a broken shekel. Exactly. So this is the bride price, so to speak. And the tax was only levied on the people of Israel, because of the death of the firstborn, remember? And God was saying, well, I'm going to ask something of you now, and that is a becka, half of a shekel. That's the bride price for your redemption. And here we see he's giving her one fifth of an ounce of gold, a becca, and two gold bracelets weighing four ounces, and asked, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she answered, I am the daughter of Betuel, the son of Milcah, born to Nahor, adding, we have plenty of straw and fodder and room for staying overnight. So the man, shachah. he like, he bowed down. He laid himself on the ground. Now, where do we see this? Go to Genesis 18 again. You see, Abraham's servant learned from Abraham. It says, he, he went, verse uh, chapter 18, verse 2. He raised his eyes and looked, and there in front of him stood three men. On seeing them, he ran from the door, the tent door, to meet them, prostrate himself in the ground. He shakha, he prostrated himself in the ground. And he said, my Lord, if I have found favor in your sight. See, Abraham is, Abraham's servant is exhibiting those same characteristics, isn't he? And he prostrated himself before Adonai. Uh, and then he said, blessed be Adonai, the God of my master, Abraham." who has not abandoned his faithful love for my master, because Adonai has guided me to the house of my master's kinsman. So the girl ran off. She runs a lot, doesn't she? And told her mother's household what had happened. Rivka had a brother named Lavan. Everybody should say, uh-oh. <laughs> Rivka had a brother named Lavan. Now, Lavan, he's a brother. And it says here, he saw the nose ring and the bracelet on his sister's wrists. He's interested in the story now, isn't he? He's like, ah, this guy's got something that he might want to share with me. And, Le- and Levan gets, gets involved in the story now for, for um, nefarious motivations, doesn't he? Now, Levon means white, it means white. It's actually where we get the word Lebanon, the country of Lebanon, you ever heard of that? It's like the place of white-capped mountains. Um, it's also, have you guys ever heard of frankincense being called a uh, lavona, lavonia? That means, that's where we get lavon, white, because frankincense is white. It's a, it's a, it's a, a white substance. But his name means white. And uh, it says, when he saw the nose ring and the braces on his sister's wrist, and when he heard his sister's riff, his report of what the man had said to her, he ran out to the spring and found the man standing there by the camels. He says, come on in you whom Adonai has blessed. Why are you standing outside when I've made my room in the house and prepared a place for the camels? So the man went inside, and while the camels were being unloaded and provided straw and fodder, water was brought for him to wash his feet and the the feet of the men with him. When a meal was set before him, he said, I won't eat until I say what I have to say. So it's interesting here, Eliezer, the, the unnamed servant, is saying, hey, before I take anything from you people, Let me just get this out there because I wanna make sure all my intentions are out on the table. And here they are. He says, speak. He said, I'm Avraham's servant. Adonai has greatly blessed my master so that he's grown wealthy. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female slaves, camels and donkeys. Sarah, my master's wife, bore my master a son when she was old and he has given him everything he has. My master made me swear saying, you're not to choose a wife for my son from among the women of the Canaanites, among whom I am living. Rather, you are to go to my father's house, to my kinsman to choose a wife for my son. And I said to my master, suppose the woman isn't willing to follow me. And Avraham answered me, Adonai, in whose presence I live, will send his, his melek, his angel, with you to make your trip successful. And you are to pick a wife for my son, from my kinsman in my father's house. This will release you from your obligation under my oath. But if you come to my kinsmen and they refuse to give her to you, this too will release you from my oath. So today I came to the spring and said, Adonai, God of my master Avraham, if you are causing my trip to succeed in its purpose, then here I am, standing by the spring. I will say to one of the girls coming out to draw water, let me have a sip of your water from your jug. And if she answers, yes, drink, and I will water your camels as well. Then let her be the woman you intend for my master's son. And even before I had finished speaking to my heart, there came Rivka, going out, with her jug on her shoulder, she went down to the spring and drew water. And when I said to her, Please let me have a drink, she immediately lowered the jug from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will water your camels as well. So I drank, and she had the camels drink as well. Verse 47 I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she answered, The daughter of Betuel, the son of Nahor, from whom Milcah bore to him. Then I put a ring on her nose and the bracelets around her wrist, bowed my head, and prostrated myself before Adonai, and I blessed Adonai, God of my master Abraham for having led me the right way to obtain my master's brother for his son. Verse 49, so now if you people intend to show me grace and truth to my master, tell me, but if not, tell me so that I can turn elsewhere. Lavan and Betuel replied, since this comes from Adonai, we can't say anything to you, either good or bad. Rivka is here in front of you, take her and go. Let Let her be your master's son's wife. As Adonai has said, When Avraham's servant heard what they said, he prostrated himself on the ground to Adonai. Then the servant brought out silver and gold jewelry together with clothing and gave them to Rivka. He also gave valuable gifts to her brother and mother. He and his men then ate and drank, and they stayed the night. In the morning, they got up, and he said, send me off to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days, at least 10 days. After that, she will go. You see, um, Laban is already kind of starting to show his hand a little bit here, isn't he? He's like, remember, we're going to see Laban come up in a different story, aren't we, in a few yeah, chapters? Yeah. And we're going to see his character fully exposed before us. And he answered them, don't delay me since Adonai has made my trip successful, but let me go back to my master. So you see, the, the serpent has laid everything on the table here and they still agree to the terms. But he's verbatim repeating everything and all his interactions. So it's very clear that look, just remember how like Abraham was like, no, I'm gonna give you 400 shekels for this cave. I'm not gonna negotiate with you because I don't ever want you to have grounds to come back and say that I cheated you or deceived you in some way. I'm gonna do everything on the up and up. So in the morning they got up and then she says, you know, let's keep her for 10 more days. And he answered them, don't delay me since Adonai has made my trip successful, but let me go back to my master. And they said, we will call the girl and see what she says. So they called Rivka and asked her, Will you go back with this man? And she replied, "Halak, yes, I will." Verse fifty-nine. So they sent their sister Rivka away with her yanak. Now um, this is uh, yanak. Your translation maybe say like a nurse or wet nurse. Yanak comes from the verb literally to suckle, like a, like breastfeed. But um, the Targum Jonathan, which is an ancient translation of the Hebrew Bible, renders it as a pedagogue that this is her teacher, um, which is interesting to me because this is in Galatians chapter uh, 3. Paul says that the Torah is our pedagogue, our teacher to bring us to the, the master, right? So she's bringing this yannak or this pedagogue, this teacher with her. And I like that aspect better because that's the essence of a, of a, of a wet nurse, a nurse that's, that's uh, breastfeeding a baby for another woman is that not only is she... Uh, giving her sustenance from her own body, but she's also mentoring her and teaching her. And, and we know the name of this nurse, her name is Deborah. Now, how do we know that? Go over to Genesis 35, eight, Genesis 35, eight. It says, then Deborah Rivka's nurse died. And she was buried below Beit El, under the oak, which was given the name of the Oak of Weeping. Now, there was one uh, commentary I heard. I think it was like a rabbinic comment that said that this is the very oak under which the prophetess Deborah, uh, centuries later, would then help judge and lead the people of Israel. Now, if that's true, I don't know. But it's interesting. Her name was Deborah. So she oversaw, Deborah kind of helped Rebecca stand strong and pious as a teacher in the midst of an immoral family, you could say, a deceptive family and in a nation that's full of idolatry. In verse 60, so they blessed Rivka with these words, our sister, may you be the mother of millions and may your descendants possess the cities of those who hate them. Then Rivka and her maids mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rivka and went on his way. Meanwhile, Isaac, one evening, after coming along the road from Be'er Lachai Ro'i, he was living in the Negev. You see it down there on the the map. Oh, it's not very big, but it's going to be down here, down in the south of the Negev. You see how long they're traveling. He was living in the Negev. Now, he's not living with his father, right? Remember, we talked a couple weeks back about the, the situation that happened on Mount Moriah with the sacrifice of Isaac and, and all of this stuff, it, it, was, it was an odd dynamic, wasn't it? And we don't see Isaac reappear until now. After that, he's, he kind of drops off the radar until right now. And we see Sarah die in the meantime. And some people would say that she died of grief because she felt like when Abraham was on this three-day journey up to Mount Moriah, that she knew that she was losing her only son, the son that was the son of promise. She was grieving and she was so heartbroken that she ended up dying. But we, don't, we see Isaac moving away from his father. He's still in the land. And in fact, Isaac is the only of the three patriarchs that never leaves the land. He never leaves the promised land. The other two, they end up leaving. They go to different places, Egypt, right? And come back. Isaac always stays close. But it says, uh, he went out walking in the field. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rivka too looked up. And when she saw Yitzchak, Isaac, she nefel. Now, nafal, this means to like literally fall down off the camel. And she's like going, like she's prostrating herself before him. She's falling off the camel. And she said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And when the servant replied, this is my master, she took her saif, her, her veil, and she covered herself. So it's showing here another aspect of Rivka's Character is humility and modesty, right? She's prostrating herself. She's showing hospitality, but she's also showing modesty. And that's a good model. Um, young ladies and young men in the room model that, emulate that modesty. You know, you, you just thought like clothes that you wear. I'm not just talking about clothes. That's part of a big part of it. But also modesty. Modesty is not not forgetting or or. or it's, it's not ignoring your beauty or erasing your beauty. It's knowing when to show it. Does that make sense? When it is appropriate and when it is not appropriate to show your beauty. We all know you're beautiful. Now, young men, same thing. But you're not handsome. You're strong. <laughs> your modesty is knowing that you're strong, but knowing when to exhibit it and when to not exhibit it. Knowing when to show your strength and your full potential, and when it is not appropriate to show your full strength and potential. You don't have to be 100% all the time, right? Now, there's a, up here on our Torah art, we have in Hebrew on the top there, Mary Shelley painted that for us. It says, Da Lifnei, if you go from right to left, I don't know if my laser would show up up here at the art. Da Lifnei Mi Ata Omid, does anybody know what that means? Them before. Know before whom you are standing. Why do we have that? And there, if you go to the um, Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., there's a Torah ark from Germany, forget what town, and it's on display, a piece of it is on display before the Nazis came in, and they, they actually, the brown shirts, destroyed the Torah ark with axes, but still preserved in the Holocaust Museum in D.C. Is that right there? that someone painted on their Torah ark, and it's on a lot of Torah arks and a lot of synagogues. Know before whom you're standing. In other words, what that's, it's a constant reminder, not everybody reads Hebrew here, but it's a constant reminder that as you enter that door and you come around, you're not entering the house of God, but you are entering a place where there's a lot of people that are coming together to worship the God of heaven. And you should know that. So this is a place where we don't try to bring glory to ourselves, but give all glory to Him. Does that make sense? One of the easiest ways that we can steal glory from God is by drawing attention to us through our physical bodies or through our abilities and our skills. Musicians can draw glory to themselves. Teachers can try to do it as well. But it's knowing that you're beautiful Modesty is knowing that you're beautiful and you know know the appropriate times to reveal that beauty. Does that make sense? Men, it's knowing that you're strong and powerful, but also knowing when to reveal that and to use that, okay? But you see, Rivka is expressing modesty, isn't she? She knows, this is my husband-to-be. I'm going to reveal my beauty to him very soon. But I always say, guys, if you're... Picking out your outfit to come here on a Saturday morning. And you put that outfit on. And you look in the mirror. And that the question enters your mind. What's the question? You know what the question is. Is this a little bit too small? Or is this a little bit too tight? Or whatever the question is in your mind. If that question just if that question enters your mind, what do you do? Just take it off. Just take it off. Put something else on. Tighten my belt. Because... There's, there's a place and a time, you know, like, if, if, ladies, if you have husbands, men, if you have wives, there's a place and time to wear that, the tights, whatever. This is not the place. This is a place where we gather to worship a holy God, right? Not to reveal your physical beauty. All through the millennia in human history, humans have gathered to worship false gods, and they commit gross acts of sin and debauchery before their false gods. This is not that. Our God's different than those gods. Our God just wants your heart, right? Let's keep going. Verse 66. So the servant told Yitzchak everything he had done. He's relaying it all to him now. And then Yitzhak Isaac, brought her into his mother Sarah's tents and took Rivka. And she, bo- she became his wife and he loved her. And thus Yitzhak was comforted for the loss of his mother. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful love story, isn't it? I, I have some lessons up here from Genesis 24 that you guys can take. And, and I'd like to get your feedback as well here in a minute. But a lot happens at wells. And I talked about this earlier. Go on a Bible study this week and just go on a journey and look up wells and springs in the Bible and everything that happens in them. And you'll, you'll find that fascinating. Like the one that comes to mind, John 4. You guys have any? John 4, the Samaritan woman. Do you have any other ones? Okay, there's your homework. <laughs> Number two, you marry the family. You marry the family. Who? This could either be really good or not so much. But I will tell you, young people in the room, when you marry your spouse, you marry the family. That could be really good or really bad. What's interesting is um, there is a degree of control that Avraham has... Over the marriages and there's a degree it's not a fully arranged marriage and I don't think arranged marriages are healthy and good. We should not do those, but there is a degree where the parent is saying these are the qualities I think you should find in a spouse and the parent has the ability through the servant to say, nope, that's not the one. Yes, that's the one. I mean, there was girls that I had as girlfriends in high school at separate times. (laughs) My parents would look at me and say, no, that's not the one for you. They knew that they had characteristics and qualities that were not in alignment with what they were hoping for me. And they were free to express their opinions, and they did. And sometimes it persuaded me, and other times it didn't. It caused me a lot of pain. And I remember um, when they met Stacy, uh, we actually took a canoe trip one time with Stacy and my parents. And Stacy and I were just seeing each other. We were boyfriend and girlfriend or whatever at the time. And uh, we're canoeing along in this creek in, in Southwest Florida. If you know anything about bodies of water in Southwest Florida, there's large carnivorous reptiles, right? And we're paddling along and my mom says, oh, there's a pretty, I don't know if it's a flower or a fern on the bank of the creek. And uh, she's like, oh, that's pretty. She's like, man, I would love to have one of those. And Stacy overheard her say that and Stacy just hops out of the canoe and goes to the bank and, and picks that for my mom. And my dad was like, my dad was laughing. He was in a canoe as well and he goes, that's when I knew that Stacy was the one for you, you know. I was like, that's really funny. But yeah. So parents, you in the room, you have, a, you have the right to express your views on a potential spouse for your, your child. But your child is also, you don't want to create a Romeo-Juliet kind of complex either. The, the most powerful thing that you can do for your child is gently express your opinion and say, I don't, honestly, I, I love you, but I don't think they're the one for you. And then what? Pray. Pray that it falls apart. <laughs> and, and somehow parents get smarter and smarter as the years go on. And your child will, will look at you as getting smarter and smarter as the years go on. And then they will begin to value your opinion more and more as the years go on. So you can express your opinion. And, and parents, if your child is living in your household, you can, control your, you can control your child. That's totally okay to do. You're paying the bills. They're under your household. You're legally their guardian. If you can say, that boy is never welcome here again... More power to you. (laughs) Do it. Or that girl is never welcome here again. More power to you. Do that. But if she's 22, if he's 24, whatever, if they're older, express your opinion and then pray. Got me? Okay. Lesson number three. Hospitality is a central component to our faith. We see this even down to the writer of Hebrews says, be hospitable because in doing so you might what? Entertain angels that you don't know are angels. Yeah, hospitality is central to our faith. That's why I said beginning of of the teaching today, meet someone that you don't really know, get their name, get their phone number, and invite them over for dinner. Chances are, if they're here, they're probably not going to be like a serial killer or anything like that. All right? Number four. There are prophetic qualities to this story we just read. Now, I want to go to you guys. What are some prophetic qualities? Where do we see the gospel in this story? It's woven through it. Do you see anything? Anybody? We have... a servant serving, perhaps, yeah. Is there an unnamed servant, so to speak, that is preparing a bride? Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit. Yeah. Preparing a bride for the who? The son, son, Yeshua. But in this story, it's Isaac. Remember, Isaac just came down off the mountain from being, quote-unquote, resurrected. He was... He was nearly sacrificed, right? But a ram will replace him. He's coming off. Now it's time for the unnamed servant to prepare the bride for the son. And who sins? Who sins the servant? The father does. You see any other, other prophetic qualities here? Anybody? Got you all stumped? Karen's thinking. Yeah, Michael. Well, Isaac was in negative, and so for the 40 days in the wilderness, yeah, that's a good, good comparison as well, yeah. Alright, your homework this week is to find more similarities between the gospel and this narrative, and maybe we'll discuss them next week. But I want to hear from you guys, I think that's all the lessons I learned. Um, and I have Matthew 15, if you want to go with me to Matthew 15 real quick, this is interesting after you read this story, and then we read Matthew 15, he's leaving and, and the servant is leaving the land of Canaan Matthew 15 sounds a little bit more interesting. Matthew 15. I'm looking for my verse here where I want to start. Verse. We could start in verse 23, but Yeshua did... Okay, no, verse 21. Yeshua left the place and went off to the region of Sahor and Sidon, a woman from the Canaanites who was living there and came to him pleading, Sir, have pity on me, the son of David. My daughter is cruelly held under the power of demons. But Yeshua did not say a word to her. Then his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away because she's following us and keeps pestering us with her crying. And he said, I was sent only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But... She came, she fell at his feet. She said, sir, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's food and toss it to their pet dogs. And she said, that is true, sir. But even the dogs eat the leftovers that fall from their master's table. Then Yeshua answered her, lady, you are a person of great trust. Your desire will be granted. And her daughter was healed at that very moment. So it sounds a little bit different now. A uh, servant is leaving the land of Canaan and going to the kinsman, right? Looking for the, the lost bride, so to speak. But also... Turns out, even the nations, the idolatrous nations, we call them the Gentiles, attain salvation, so to speak. That's interesting. That's another prophetic quality there as well. But let me hear from you guys now that I'm done talking. Um, what are some, what are some uh, lessons you took away or questions you might have? We've got a few minutes for question and answer time. None? Got it all? Wow, you guys are quiet today. They draw you out. Don't make eye contact with me. That tells me the question. Awesome. Well, in addition to looking... Yeah, Patrick. uh Uh-oh. Here it is. What was the word that she used when she said yes? What was the the Hebrew word? When she says I will, uh, it means to walk, like halak, halak, like I will go, halak. The first halakic judgment? Yeah, yeah. Made the first halakic judgment, yeah. right. (laughs) <laughs> that was your one for the week any other questions yeah, any other questions awesome let's close in, uh, in prayer and then we'll do the blessing over the fruit the vine and the bread Abba I thank you so much for this time and study your word we thank you that Yeshua is woven through the pages of scripture and your plan for redemption and redeeming a bride is woven all through the, and timeless throughout the, the pages of scripture I thank you for your Shabbat and may we continue to worship you through the breaking of bread together and eating and partaking in fellowship we pray all this in Yeshua's mighty name. Amen. Amen. So if you guys want to get uh, through the blessing of the fruit.